We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the podcast, we're delving into the exponential costs of the American healthcare system and the impact of these expenses on patients, providers, and society at large. Our host for this conversation is Dr. Ali Hossin. Here's Ali with more. The American healthcare system is one of the most expensive and complex systems in the world, yet it remains plagued by significant inequalities. Despite spending more per capita on healthcare than any other country, millions of Americans are still uninsured or underinsured, and healthcare outcomes vary significantly by race, ethnicity and socioeconomic status. To discuss the increasing commodification of healthcare in the US and how this may serve as a cautionary tale for systems such as the National Health Service in the UK, I'm joined today by Dr. Ricardo Nuila, doctor and author of The People's Hospital, The Real Cost of Life in an Uncaring Health System. Ricardo, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me, Ali. It's great to be here. So firstly, can you tell us about Ben Tobb, the hospital where you work and which you've written about so candidly? And where does this kind of hospital fit into the American healthcare system? Yeah, it's kind of an anomaly in the American healthcare system. Ben Tobb Hospital is a public hospital in Houston, Texas. There are not many public hospitals in the United States. And it is funded, it is the flagship hospital of the Harris Health System, which is a county-based public healthcare system that provides healthcare to people who can't access or can't afford healthcare. And in the United States, because of rising costs, that has been an increasing number of people. 
So Bentob Hospital is the flagship, and it is this whole system is funded by local property taxes. And that's where, that's where I learned how to become a doctor. It's also a teaching hospital, so many of the educational activities for Baylor College of Medicine occur there, and, and, and it provides this service for the community as well. And how many safety net hospitals are there in the U.S.? It's a very good question. It's really hard to tell. It's, in fact, there's not a very good system for, for how to quantify that. Safety net hospitals are those hospitals that have tried to administer to those who cannot access healthcare or cannot afford healthcare. So many of these have been public hospitals. Some have been nonprofit hospitals that have directed themselves toward this mission, even for-profits. There's not a very good count on, on how that occurs. Sometimes it's even philosophies by hospitals that have changed because of the demographics in the United States that have changed. Are there any limitations of a safety net hospital? There are some limitations. You know, for instance, in our system, we offer specialty care, we offer primary care, we offer excellent, what I consider to be excellent hospital care, but there's no transplants, for instance. There's no transplant center. The, the amount of money that's necessary to start the infrastructure for transplants, and also because of the way that transplants are funded in the United States, make it so that it's a very hard ask to ask the, a safety net system to give a bulk of its money toward starting transplants. There's also limits in terms of the limits that we see in elective surgeries are wait times. And so, for instance, for certain elective surgeries, like I would say lithotripsy is one of them, the wait time could be significant. Lithotripsy being the procedure to treat kidney stones. Now, in the UK, we're fortunate to have the National Health Service, or NHS, where public is the default. But I gather that that isn't the case in the US. And this was illustrated to me beautifully when I looked after a tourist visiting from the US, in fact, who tripped and fallen on an escalator on the London Underground. And after I gave him the all clear and told him he was ready to be discharged, his first question to me was, so how do I pay? And so having said that, what is the split of private and public hospitals in the US? The vast majority are private hospitals, and there's private hospitals that are nonprofit, and nonprofits are supposed to give care to those who can't afford it in order so that they don't have to pay taxes as nonprofits. It was remarkable to me when researching this book, <laughs> I've, I've worked in this system, that I didn't even know what public health care really meant. And uh, that's how the mentality of Americans is, is, is that we even think that nonprofit is public, but it's not public. It's private hospitals that are obtaining a tax exemption in order to provide care. And before we get into the rest of our conversation, I want to introduce the listeners to some of the people who feature throughout your book as we follow their medical journeys, which are at times tumultuous and tragic through the healthcare system, and also notably the American health insurance system. Could you tell us a bit about them and why you chose to feature them? Stephen is in his late 50s and he is a restaurant manager, earns $75,000 a year and elects to have his company's least expensive healthcare plan. And I think that is very significant. In, in America, we have pegged health insurance according to work. And so that has developed, that developed from 1945. It wasn't a strategy to deal with healthcare. It was more a strategy to deal with inflation at the time. 
but it has evolved and to the point where we, we as a baseline, we recognize that em- employers should give healthcare benefits to workers. Stephen elects for the lowest amount, and when he becomes sick during the COVID pandemic, it's when he, he starts to realize that he has a growth on his neck. He goes to the nearest private hospital who charges him $600 just to wait in the emergency room. He has to go uh, through this labyrinthine process, this Kafkaesque process to get to see a doctor. Now, Stephen Stephen is a person who I just had coffee with him actually like last week. He's a very people-oriented person. He wants to like interact with people, make them happy as a restaurant manager. But what he finds when he's at this private hospital is this that the doctors, they do a CAT scan and they say, you, you have cancer, however, we can't treat you. You don't have insurance. They meant he doesn't have sufficient insurance. And that is the very, very difficult situation in the United States, is, is that there is no insurance that takes care of everything. There's so many different grades and these company policies cover one thing or not, and they might cover the hospital. It is too difficult and complex for a person who just wants to have their health taken care of to understand. And so while he's understanding this, Stephen, one of the social workers tells him, you should just go to the public hospital. And for Stephen, this is, he's, he's again, he's an Amer- raised in Texas, Texan born. The idea of a public hospital to him sounds like he has hit rock bottom. He feels like he's reached his lowest point because he feels like that the public hospital in Houston, again, an anomaly in our system, is going to be where just where he imagines drug addicts and the incarcerated. His journey is what I think a lot of people who come across this system find, which is that they have expectations about what this healthcare system, public healthcare in America could be like, and they, they end up finding that they receive good care that is cost-effective, and Stephen, by the end, feels like he has received the best care in Houston. He's very vocal about that. So I thought that that uh, story almost kind of, even as a Houstonian, reflected my own story before I was working in the system. In the NHS, I imagine since it's for everybody, there is not this level of like grades of, of judgment on people. But I feel that that is part of American healthcare to an extent, is that if you go to the public hospital, the mentality is, well, you must be one of those people who don't work, who uh, can't afford insurance, you must be homeless. And that is becoming less and less because of the costs in America and how difficult it is for people to obtain healthcare access. That's um, really quite a remarkable insight into the sheer complexity of the American healthcare insurance system. And that sort of makes me wonder, how much does the average patient understand the healthcare system and the levels of insurance and that sort of thing? I would say that the average person, I mean, I'll speak, even doctors don't understand it, okay? And, and I will speak very frankly and candidly. I have worked as a doctor. I have uh, researched this. I've read many books about it. I don't fully understand. I mean, it is, I think it is, the rules are complex, for a reason, I think, is because it is so market-driven that what is the incentives of those who are providing the healthcare, meaning the corporations that are in charge of insurance companies that own hospitals, many of which are the same and they're vertically integrated, 
their mentality is to extract as much money from the American public as possible. I mean, that's just the mentality of any corporation for, you know, and what we're finding is, is that that's, that's happening in healthcare, right? So these rules are in order so that, you know, the public can just yield and just pay. If it becomes complex to fight a bill, if you establish levels and levels and levels of that, eventually some people will give in and, and that's a way of extracting money. Um, and that's one of the things that I think about, again, I'm a great admirer of the NHS and I think that one of the things that people need to realize is that simplicity is an incredible, incredible benefit, okay? Everybody gets it, I feel like, in England, you know? You just, everybody's covered, you know? Everybody has the opportunity to go see a doctor. It's not this financial speak that you get from like people trying to get you to invest to say, oh, this and this, you know, this is how the medical system is in the United States. It's like these different laws and these different regulations and this jargon that's really trying to obfuscate that the complexity is there so that we can just pay more. What about the Americans that are uninsured? Do you have an idea of numbers that don't have insurance and what, what they can do in situations of needing healthcare. So in, in my city alone, in Houston, Texas, there are 1.4 million people who are uninsured. And in America, there are 28.5 million people who are uninsured. Texas, which is um, a state with around like 35 million, has 5.2 million people uninsured. Again, since insurance has been pegged to employment and with shifting, you know, labor markets, we find at our hospital, again, a hospital that is designed to care for people, even if they don't have insurance, whenever the labor market shifts, we see people come to the hospital because they lose coverage. It's not, I, for instance, I had a patient who um, was receiving cancer treatment, lost his insurance and they stopped giving him treatment because he lost his job and therefore he lost his insurance. And so in the midst of that cancer treatment, had to go on his own and reestablish with us, right? And it's not an, it's a very common story. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because, again, our system is an anomaly. The book is, is an example of how my concern about how healthcare is administered and provided outside of a system like this. Even within our city, across the county line, I feel like people do not have this healthcare access. And so the hurdles that the uninsured have to jump through without a public system like the one in my city is, you know, they have to deal with not receiving chronic uh, treatments. So their hypertension, their diabetes can go out of control to create kidney diseases, you know, strokes, heart disease, or even at an extreme example, for instance, People who have renal disease, who do not have the coverage, are going to the emergency room twice every, every week to live because they don't have dialysis scheduled for them. And there have been economic studies that show that people who do not, are not given coverage for their renal disease to get dialysis, if they're allowed to go to the emergency room twice every week, three times every week, however long, to the emergency room, they cost taxpayers ultimately $280,000 per patient per year versus if you give the person coverage, you reduce the cost to taxpayers from $280,000 to $70,000. And that includes 
you know, saving on blood transfusions, saving on ICU beds. So it's, it's, it's an enormous problem how our system depends on insurance and, and the holes that are in the insurance plans. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. And just so that the listeners can understand the sort of numbers and figures that we're talking about here, um, do you have any idea of how much sort of one visit to the emergency room would cost for someone who's uninsured? So that is a very good question. It's a very complex question because in, in essence, it would be, it can be arbitrary and it's changing right now. But one of the answers that comes from my gut right now is whatever that emergency room wants to charge you depending on your insurance level, depending on all these different factors, the incentives in the American healthcare system are for the corporations to just charge you to just try to extract as much money from your pocket as possible. And so if you go to the emergency room and depending on what it is, I mean, I've had, you know, Stephen told me that when he went to the emergency room the first time, they sent him a $8,000 bill just for waiting inside of the, he didn't even get treated. He was just waiting there and he ended up not paying it and they wrote it off. But that's an example of how they just attempt to get you know money from people. They, it, you send the bill, it looks very formal and it becomes like a kind of fishing, going fishing and seeing if, if, if uh, somebody will pay for it. Now at our system, the public healthcare system, there are studies that show that like the billing is very much set according to the bar of what Medicare will charge hospitals. Okay, Medicare is the federal insurance it's, that is provided for people who are 65 years or older. If you've paid into the system, you get this federal insurance. And over time, since its inception, in order to control costs, they have that large insurance that covers a lot of people have decided to figure out how much things actually cost and compensate accordingly. The public healthcare system where I work bills almost exactly at what Medicare charges. Usually, if you have a private insurance, the hospitals will bill that private insurance around three and a half times what Medicare charges. Okay. And People are paying much more out of pocket, and so that will spill over into the patient also. So there are health economists who dedicate their lives to this question that you asked, you know, so it's very hard. But the, the gist of it is, is that it's really whatever the hospitals want to charge you and what they can feel like can get out of you. So what I'm hearing is that there's no real standardization or cap on 
what healthcare providers can charge? So this goes back to a fundamental uh, notion in American medicine, which is fee-for-service, which is that since the Revolutionary War, I, I love that we're on a show uh, with England and I'm mentioning the Revolutionary War, but um, we, uh, since then, in America, doctors have not had any sort of bounds on what they charge in terms of if you perform a service, doctors are allowed to charge a fee. So... You know, at the extreme, that means like uh, at the example that I give in the book, if a doctor operates on you and leaves a rag inside of you during the operation, he can do perform a second operation to remove the rag and bill you for two operations. You know, those are uh, th those that's fee for service. That's an example of fee for service. And this is one of the reasons why healthcare was one of the fundamental reasons why healthcare is so expensive in America. In the 1910s, when uh, healthcare reform in the United States was a possibility and there was pushing for this, uh, doctors lobbied against this very strongly and defeated universal healthcare in America on the basis of this idea that doctors should have the right to charge for every service. And it remains one of the most fundamental reasons why things are expensive. No, none other than President Nixon called it the illogical incentive of the American healthcare system which is that ultimately what this, what this means is, is that doctors are incentivized to treat illness rather than to prevent illness, right? They're incentivized to perform more and more tests looking because if you get paid for more visits, if you get paid for more procedures, if you get paid for all of that, then, then, then there's going to be a natural incentive to do more, do more, do more. And uh, rather than to think about a preventive measure. And that's one of the reasons I also really respect the NHS, because that is a totally different mentality in the NHS. It's more preventive oriented. So on the note of sort of prevention and treatment, it seems to me that at the point at which you see a patient at Ben Tarb, their condition will have potentially escalated to a pretty serious point, which may be as a result of not having been able to access that basic preventative care. What can this look like? It takes the form of many different things. For instance, one of the patients that I write about, she was in her early 40s, according to the chart. She looked older and she had signs to me. I was a, a very young doctor at the time, an intern, and she had signs to me of dementia to the point where she was like, it's a severe dementia, what you might expect in a 70 to 80 year old person with Alzheimer's. But when I when we looked through the chart, it was clear that it was just because of uncontrolled diabetes having caused her to have many, many strokes. When diabetes is allowed to run so rampant, then the propensity for strokes are higher. And that manifests in all organs, too. So you, I will find a lot of people without that preventative care already at the point of organ failure at a young age. It's not uncommon to see people with heart failure in their 40s or 50s because of uncontrolled blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes. Like I said, people who already need dialysis at young age because, again, the blood pressure has been so dramatically uncontrolled. And also, of, of course, cancers, too. I think that one of the things that we as uh, practitioners have to deal with is that the majority of our patients, when they come for a diagnosis of cancer, their, their cancer is already at a stage four level metastasized widespread, meaning that it just hadn't been picked up, uh, meaning that when that person had their first symptoms, didn't see a doctor, and 
I would say that that's because they just didn't have the facility to, 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 to go see a doctor. And that's, that's the difficulty of not having preventive care. That sounds really challenging indeed. And in your book, you talk about Medicine Inc. and the motivation of profit in the healthcare system. Is it true that choice of diagnostic tests and treatments can be sort of preferentially selected based on their their cost or income generated rather than medical necessity? I think that that, that happens much more often than uh, we like to admit. Again, I work in the public in a public system where there are some breaks on us. I think that the, those breaks allow me to practice medicine that is very patient-oriented, and, and I think it's actually like much more on the principles of medicine rather than it is on the principles of uh, business. For instance, you know, we have a limited number. We have only three MRI machines in the whole, in the whole hospital for a large hospital. So it's often the case that we have, if I think that a patient of mine needs an MRI, it's often the case that there's a wait time for that. I think that that's not a bad thing, okay? I think that there's other hospitals where there's many MRI machines and that the push of a button, you know, the, pers- the, the, the person's already being wheeled to the MRI machine. But what I've found is, is that if I ever think that a patient of mine needs one stat, as in right that moment, it's a matter of life and death, I can, make, I can have a conversation with the radiologist. I can, have, I can make my case. I can argue on behalf of that patient, and that helps the patient because... Sometimes those, those conversations are interesting. Sometimes the radiologist will say, if you want something absolutely right now, go for a CAT scan instead. In fact, you can see the same thing that you're looking for, that you're really looking for using this. Or the radiologist might say, you're right. I think we need, we're going to get him in very quickly. Or it might be the case that I don't need that immediately and the patient's condition changes and the MRI is actually not necessary and it, become, it comes a way to save on costs. So I do think that in other hospitals, the availability of something and getting it now, now, now uh, will end up creating higher costs. There's some hospitals that utilize that as a model, like have those expensive tests dispensable so that we can utilize them so that we can bill for them. I think there's definitely something to be said for sort of ease of access and ease of ordering and use and the benefits of sort of exercising clinical judgment and making use of a resource that's finite. I agree. I think that that's one of the fundaments of medicine. I think when you get into med, you know, I think that observation, taking time to observe and think things through and, and having a plan and sticking with it is, to me, that's the way I was lucky enough to have good mentors and people who, sh- who showed me that. And I felt like that's the way, that's the type of medicine that I want to practice. This is what I explain to patients. We're trying to hit the bullseye here. You want a human being thinking with you alongside of you at the bedside and making these decisions and allowing these things and recognizing what are the alarm signs. I think we've gone away with that with techno- technology and especially incentives in the United States have veered medicine away from that. There is, of course, a counter argument, which is that a market-based approach to healthcare incentivizes innovation and efficiency and may lead to better outcomes for patients. It's something that has to be raised, that question. And what I would say is, number one, is, is that a public healthcare system does not stifle innovation, especially if you think of it like, I'm, I'm not 
suggesting that we eliminate the private healthcare system in America. I'm suggesting that we have a basic for everybody. And so they're not mutually exclusive here. I know that in, in, in the NHS, and perhaps you can tell me more about how robust the private system, but there is, if, even though there's NHS is the, is the fundament, I've heard and I've read about other private practitioners there. I think that there's ways to have both. In the United States, I feel like we live in an extreme where we have, we have mostly fully private and we don't have any sort of public counterweight to that. I also think that that's an idea about innovation that doesn't necessarily play out when you look at how these corporations behave. They put budgets into research and development and that's not changing. Those are like fixed budgets. And again, the prices that they're charging are based on like what they can extract. Not, it's not like they're trying to gain more profit for the innovation. It's, it's for the corporation to grow and then they have a fixed budget for research and development. So I understand the argument that we do need to have some level of competition. I just believe that the, the nuance here is, is that we are in the extreme on the other end and we can have both. I'm with you on that, how innovation is possible in the public sector. Obviously, with the National Health Service, we've seen, especially in recent times with the COVID-19 pandemic, that in fact, using the NHS as a platform for recruiting patients for clinical trials led to great discoveries for treatment of COVID-19 and with the trialing of the vaccines and so forth. I feel like that the biggest innovation that happened during, for me, as a doctor who's taking care of COVID patients in the ICU and in the wards was that when the study that came from the NHS about dexamethasone, that was the game changer. I thought it was very interesting that on the American side, we were trying another drug, you know, that I think had like a more expensive drug. It wasn't like this basic drug that everybody had access to. It was remdesivir, right? And, and that was the one that was like, we're not sure about the data. But dexamethasone for me was the game changer in COVID. And I give a lot of credit to the NHS for producing that study and, and even having the idea to produce that study. Uh, I think it is emblematic of a system that cares about its public rather than the American version, which was like, the pharmaceutical company trying to fit like a drug to thinking about markets and everything like that, it was not as significant as dexamethasone. I think what you're uh, alluding to is the recovery trial, which led to the recognition of dexamethasone as a treatment for COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. In the UK, we're looking at the increasing privatisation of healthcare and outsourcing to private providers and the increased pressure on the National Health Service. I wondered how you think this might affect the quality and accessibility of healthcare service for the British population. Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, um, again, I, I have so much respect for the NHS and it's hard to extrapolate like my experiences in this local system to something as uh, large scale as the NHS but I can say that in our local healthcare system, we've had uh, public healthcare system, we've had times where that has helped to, to pay for people outside of the system to take care of some of the patients where there is like wait times. For instance, there was an attempt to uh, have colonoscopies performed by private practitioners because the system just could not perform as many colonoscopies. The same thing happened with some other specific medical situations, and it's variable. 
something that really resonated with me is your discussion of so-called algorithmania, that is the reliance of modern medicine on guidelines, protocols and algorithms. And whilst these algorithms are often constructed from research and an evidence base, this can not only be a reductive, oversimplified approach to our practice of medicine, but you argue that they can do patients a disservice. Yeah, I think algorithmania to me is utilizing decision trees and algorithms when more than that should be utilized to help a patient. When the decision trees don't lead you to helping that person, but rather to helping yourself get that patient out of the emergency room or out of the, uh, out of the uh, wards. The example that I give in the book is chest pain. The one that I see a lot in my practice is that it's so often the case that somebody presents to the emergency room with chest pain and what happens is that there's this complex tree about how to rule out that this is a heart attack, but there's so many nuances that you don't realize about that person. If you're trying to just rule out, there's like this decision tree, but I give the example about my grandmother, but I've had many examples of people who have chest pain for other reasons. And if they don't have their chief complaint addressed, they leave without understanding why they were here in the first place, or they don't even have their chief complaint satisfied. So I feel like it's become the other extreme of like the checkbox portion of medicine. I, checkboxes can be very good for, for certain things, but, but when it comes to diagnosis, it can be misleading and it can give us a false sense of comfort rather than to address the person's complaint right there. And I think that because it's in this ornate algorithm, we don't approach that algorithm with enough skepticism to say, like, we need to figure it out ourselves also. Algorithms are a tool. I, I use them all the time, but they're just a tool. Algorithmania is when that tool becomes the practice instead of just a tool. On a related note, you're somewhat of a champion of creativity and incorporating disciplines such as the arts and humanities within medicine. Your writing is one obvious example of this, but you also direct the Humanities Expression and Arts Lab at Baylor College of Medicine. Could you tell me more about that? The, the Humanities Expression and Arts Lab is a way to integrate the arts and humanities into medical education, into the practice of medicine, to address those problems that we've identified in medicine that really can't be addressed through scientific education. In 2020, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, the large body that governs medical schools released a report. It was called The Fundamental Role of Arts and Humanities in Medical Education, stating that many of the large problems that we have in medical education in the practice of medicine, for instance, doctor burnout, patient satisfaction, communication, even ideas like tolerance for ambiguity, you know, that doctors make decisions based on a conception of black and white worlds rather than like, well, these are can be nuanced decisions. The governing body said, we think that to help this, the arts and humanities have a role. And this is, this is a, just a classic idea of medicine. In fact, I think a lot of us went into medicine because we knew that it wasn't just engineering and, 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 and math. It was a different part of that. It was, it was, it involved philosophy, history. You know, you wanted your doctor to have an understanding of the world because that ultimately you wanted that person sitting by you and giving you good advice in your illness. And that person, yes, we wanted that person to utilize scientific guidelines, understand them, right? 
But I think in the last 50 years, that pendulum has swung much towards science. And we've forgotten that there's another side to it, which is communicating that to patients, understanding larger pictures, you know? And so that's what the arts and humanities does. And I think for, especially when it comes to doctor well-being, it's very important. I know that in, in, in England, like doctors feel burnt out also. In the United States, it's, it's a very big problem. People are leaving the field early. Imagine, imagine how big of a problem that is for society because society pours a lot of resources into training doctors. So if doctors are leaving the profession because they feel like they've just taxed themselves too much to work any further, then we're gonna have too few doctors for everybody. That's one of the saddest things in my profession is when somebody, one of my colleagues says, you know, I was, um, I'm a doctor, but I just, I don't even think that anything that I do is worthwhile anymore. I think it's quite poignant that you mentioned burnout and well-being, because something that I'm seeing uh, increasing recognition of as a clinician on the front line is, as you say, burnout amongst not only doctors, but other healthcare workers. And there are complex reasons for this, but some include the sheer physical and psychological toll of working in an acute healthcare environment. And that combined with working conditions, we've seen junior doctors in the UK go on strike for the second time in a decade. So moving on to my last couple of questions. Did you ever consider anonymizing the name of the hospital when you wrote this book? That's a great question. I, I couldn't do it because A, I thought it was, Ben Tobb is kind of a person or a character to me, you know, it's, it's a, I wanted people to know what a civic institution this is in the city. It has a history and it has served so many people in the community that to be honest with you, people, those are the stories that we don't hear about. In the United States, we just, again, we, we don't give enough credence to like our public institutions that have helped us achieve what we can achieve in the United States. I, I recognize that it's a public institution and that certain, you know, statements can be, I didn't want it to, I didn't want to have the unforeseen consequences of hurting this institution. Uh, I also know that it's not monolithic. There's people who might feel differently, but the, I think the larger point was that this is an example of how public healthcare in the United States can work. And by showing how it works, it illuminates more how our healthcare system in the United States is really like misguided and misfound and, and, and extreme and it's gone over the edge. Do you have any concerns that the publicity may tip the balance of how the hospital functions? I do have concerns of that. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're founded, you know, but they're, I have concerns because, because ultimately anything that's public is political, right? And so... I do have concerns that this will engender a response from certain politicians for ideological purposes. So far, that's not been the case, but you never know. What are your hopes for the future of the American healthcare system? My hope is, is that we recognize this has to change and that we have an open conversation about how this can how this can be different. Now, I know that that sounds super naive, but the the reason why I have hope for that is because I've just seen poll after poll 
how widespread the discontent, this dissatisfaction is with this system, you know? Seven out of 10 Texans, and I mean, just to let that sink in, in a survey, seven out of 10 Texans have said that the government should provide universal healthcare access, okay? That's Texas. So there is widespread agreement that we need to do something different. This gets bogged down at the level of politics so often. So I'm hopeful that this can be one of those issues that perhaps transcends that. Ricardo, thank you for speaking to me so openly and honestly. Oh, thank you, Ali, for having This is, again, this is such a pleasure. I admire, I admire your work. I admire, you know, the system in the UK. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Ricardo Nuila, author of The People's Hospital, which is available now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Ali Hossin. This episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. Thanks for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.